We've all been robbed of one of our most basic emotions because culture says to show it is shameful. Getting discomfortable with crying. As you may already know, I was a child actor. I did an episode all about it last year. But there was one major task of being an actor that I was never able to accomplish, and that was crying. Crying seemed like magic to me. I remember I would go to auditions where I was supposed to cry, and I would, like, squeeze and try to, like, yawn a little bit because, like, sometimes yawns would make me tear up slightly and it it was just obviously it was never convincing. There's sort of two types of child actors. One type, like me, is really controlled. So they're easy to direct. They seem kind of mature and robotic, and they can memorize lines and hit their mark and do all the kinds of things that an adult actor can do. But because they're so controlled and robotic, they're not actually very good actors. They, they can't emote very well. They don't seem real. And then there's the kind of like natural, raw talent actor kids who can just like cry and emote and just, they just feel so real right away. But they're kind of hard to control and they're probably coming from some kind of traumatic background, which is why they're so readily in touch with their emotions. And those are the kids who kind of peak early and then get into drugs and, and it often ends in disaster. And it's not surprising that I was one of these really controlled kids. I don't want to, you know, blame everything on my sexuality, but there's no question that when you are subconsciously repressing a really big part of your identity, like the fact that you're gay, that you have to kind of be controlled and careful and robotic to a certain degree in order to ensure that you're giving off this perfect image of yourself at all times. So it was no wonder that I was unable to access raw emotion when a big chunk of my psyche was just completely submerged and out of bounds. If I got too real, if I got too raw, if I got too out of control emotionally, it almost seemed like I was going to reveal something that I didn't want to reveal. I needed to always keep everything really tight and controlled and perfect so that nothing incriminating could slip through the cracks. And that, of course, is just on top of the culture that we live in that says emotions are childish, emotions are feminine, emotions are gay, emotions are animalistic and unevolved. We live in a culture that says you should be in complete control of your emotions at all times, and you should definitely never allow them to overflow such that you would cry in public. Crying is seen as completely childlike, like you're a baby, like you're weak, pathetic, vulnerable. So not only did I grow up with this extra layer of control, but I existed in the same culture that pretty much everyone in the Western world exists in that says that crying is bad and embarrassing, and you shouldn't do it, or at least not in front of other people. 
unless you're an actor, in which case it's okay to do it as long as you are acting, and then actually it's a really amazing and impressive thing to do. If you can cry in your role, that is certainly the clip that they are going to use at the Academy Awards. You know, crying in a film is sort of the, the, the high bar of good acting. Oh, this person can cry so realistically. They must be an incredible actor. And I guess it kind of makes sense, given that we all exist in this culture where crying is so taboo, that the people who are able to transcend that and control it at their will are considered magicians or wizards. So I spent a lot of my life trying to avoid crying in public, as we all do, but then trying desperately to cry on command when going out for auditions. And I did feel like there was something wrong with me that I couldn't cry when I wanted to, but that it never even occurred to me that there was anything wrong with the fact that we existed in a world where you generally weren't supposed to cry. So I kind of fetishized crying. And, and whenever I did cry, I was like, oh, wow, like, why? Why did I cry? How did it happen? How can I, like, control it and learn from it? And I started to basically find my sense of emotional catharsis through empathy while watching films. Whenever there was a sad movie, I would really try to take that opportunity to lean into the empathy and use it to experience some tears, which seemed like kind of research for trying to be a good actor. But also, I think I was actually getting real catharsis through other people's pain or other people's displays of emotions because I wasn't getting it in any other way. And I think this is probably true for a lot of people. You can cry when prompted, say, by a sad movie or watching someone else cry or even listening to sad songs. But you rarely cry for yourself. You rarely cry of your own accord. You rarely cry in the genuine moment-to-moment course of your own life, which is too bad. We've all been robbed of one of our most basic emotions because culture says to show it is shameful. And if you've ever questioned the power of shame or of cultural conditioning, just look at your emotions. Look at your ability to fully express not just crying, but every emotion. Maybe you can cry really well, but you can't display anger. That is sometimes the case for a lot of women because it's okay, in air quotes, for women to cry, but it's not okay, in air quotes, for women to show anger. So look at the way you're able to express emotions and then ask yourself, well, where did I learn that that wasn't okay? And why did I believe it? That is almost certainly your cultural conditioning. It is shame saying if you display this emotion, you will be rejected or judged or scorned or replaced. Your position in the group, your belonging is in danger if you do not conform. Not only that, but one of our biggest sources of shame growing up is the idea that we are regressing instead of progressing. As kids, it's all about the next developmental stage. 
Now I can crawl. Now I can walk. Now I can speak. Now I get to go to school. Now I have two numbers in my age, etc., etc. So we get pride from achieving a new developmental step, from mastering something new. And it makes perfect sense that we feel shame whenever we feel like we have regressed, when we make a mistake or we fail or we have to be held back a grade. And crying is seen as very childlike, just like peeing your pants or wetting the bed. Those are very childlike associations. So an older kid who displays those is going to feel shame associated with this regression. Oh, I'm a baby again. I'm, I'm lesser. I'm smaller. I'm worse. I'm flawed. Shame, shame, shame. And, you know, I don't mean to blame parents all the time, but obviously we've all experienced or seen parents saying, what are you, a baby? Stop crying. Stop acting like a little kid. I thought you were a big girl now. There's all of this pressure to progress. And because our culture is so uncomfortable with crying, and crying is associated with pain and suffering, not only are we trying to stop kids from crying to fit into culture, but we're also worried about them. We're we're worried that they're hurt. We have mistaken crying, the act of crying, with a sign that someone is in pain. And the thought is, if we can just stop them from crying, they're no longer in pain. Of course, it doesn't really work like that. Crying is a messenger. It doesn't actually heal the pain when you force or coerce or shame a child into not crying anymore. So over the last few years, I have been working on trying to get back in touch with my crying in a healthy way, not so that I can display it on command like an actor. In fact, quite the opposite. I'm trying to get in touch with just my own natural tear reaction to sadness or grief or pain. And on Twitter, of all places, I started to notice people using the hashtag SobSquad. And there were people talking about sobbing and the benefits of sobbing. And at first I thought it was people saying, oh, look at me, I can sob. Aren't I evolved or in touch with my emotions? The kind of declaration that would be appealing to people who are counterculture and want to be able to prove that they are not stuck in toxic masculinity, for example. So it did seem like there was a bit of a cachet to this concept of sobbing and being proud of it and posting about it on Twitter. But the more I looked into it, the more I felt convinced that not only do I want to get in touch with crying, but I want to be able to sob too. It sounded like quite a release. And it hadn't even occurred to me at that point that sobbing was a natural part of crying. I guess I always saw sobbing as crying gone out of control. But as I read more about healthy crying, it became clear that in the same way a belly laugh is a really natural and healthy way to express joy, a sob was a really healthy and deep way to process sadness. And I wanted to try it. So a few weeks ago, 
I was crying about something. I can't remember what it was. In fact, it was probably an artificially induced crying. Sometimes I feel inside of me an urge to cry and I can't get it out. So I will curate a playlist of sad songs and play it and kind of imagine various scenarios that are sad. And then eventually tears will come. But I was noticing in this scenario of kind of gaming my emotions and making myself cry that every time I cried, I squeezed my face shut really tightly. And the tears, like they came, but they were kind of had to force their way out. And I wondered, wait, what would happen if I just kind of relaxed my face? So that's what I did. I was crying. I I was all clenched up. I relaxed my face. And then all of a sudden, I broke into a sob, an audible sob, like heaving, like, <laughs> that, that was me acting. And I was blown away. I had no idea that I even had a sob inside me or that a sob was being repressed. But I guess I just built up this natural reaction to crying where I shut everything down and clench up so much that I actually am working at cross purposes. Part of me is trying to cry and listening to sad music and thinking about sad scenarios in order to squeeze the tears out, and yet my conditioning is working in the exact opposite direction and clenching and squeezing and shutting down in order to stop tears from coming out. So it was a bit of a breakthrough, and I suddenly realized that sobbing was absolutely available and possible and not this unicorn that I could never achieve. And that really got me excited, and I was like, I need to learn more about this. And then completely coincidentally, I went to a meditation sit last week, and the group here in Toronto putting on the meditation retreat is called the Conscious Explorers Club. And they happened to mention, oh, and this weekend, we have a special guest coming for a workshop. His name is Douglas Tatarin, and he is known for his bio-emotive framework. And I was like, wait, Douglas Tatarin, he is the godfather of this whole Sob Squad movement. He's coming to Toronto? That This is perfect. And they were like, yeah, and he's so popular that, of course, it's long been sold out. So I talked to the organizers, and I asked to be put on the wait list in case, you know, something happened, anything changed, I would love to come. And sure enough, The day before the event, someone got sick and canceled, and I was able to get a last-minute spot at this two-day-long weekend workshop dedicated to healthy emotional release, a.k.a. sobbing. When I arrived for the workshop, I was surprised to discover that pretty much all the people on Twitter who had been talking about this Sob Squad thing, people that I followed but had never actually met, like I didn't know them in person at all. In fact, I'd never even really interacted with many of them on Twitter. I was just sort of, you know, lurking, as they say. All of those Twitter personalities were there. People had flown in from Denver, from Vermont, from Montreal, from Edmonton. People came in from all over for this workshop. And it was sort of a who's who of Twitter sobbing enthusiasts. 
Douglas Tataran is a clinical psychologist working out of Manitoba, and he designed this bio-emotive framework. He was there to teach the class with his wife, Deborah, and one of his children, his daughter, Allie. And if I'm completely honest, I have to admit that I wasn't really expecting that I would be able to cry in front of all of these strangers at this workshop, let alone actually sob. But I was hoping I would get something out of it and, and I would, you know, get on the road towards sobbing more regularly and, and hopefully I would meet some really interesting people. But very quickly... Doug put us into trios, and we all shared a story, a conflict that we were still kind of working with, something that was quite recent. And then out of the three of us, we were supposed to choose the one that was the most activated, that was the most kind of raw and intense. And it wasn't my story, it was someone else's. And then that person was supposed to just repeat back nine different phrases, which are what Douglas calls the nine core feelings. And these phrases are designed to stimulate crying. So you basically just try each phrase out. You say it a few times in relation to that conflict that you're working on, and you see if it activates anything, if, if you feel any emotion building up. And sure enough, the guy in our group who was doing it, you know, he tested a few of them, and he was like, mm, you know, maybe this one is a little active, and yeah, I feel a bit of emotion when I say that one. And these phrases are things like, I feel worthless. I feel empty. There's a whole list of them. I'll, I'll put them in the show notes. But basically, a lot of them are related to shame, and they stimulate some of our deepest, most vulnerable, most intimate fears and insecurities. And sure enough, at a certain point, one of the phrases for this guy that I was working with in this trio really worked. And as he kept saying it and kind of explaining why he felt it was true, he just burst into tears. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> that, that was quick. And this guy is really going for it. And it is happening. It is working. And he started crying. And it just got deeper and deeper into insecurity and fear and sadness and grief and loss. And before I knew it, he was just sobbing, like audibly heaving. And then, you know, around the room, all these other people started bursting into sobs. And some people started, like, screaming and yelling and swearing. And it was actually quite intense and scary. It was for someone like me who is uncomfortable showing emotion and uncomfortable being around other people showing emotion to be in this room where these people were just letting their emotions pour out of them without any restraint was unsettling and unnerving, and I felt unsafe because in my mind, people who are able to control their emotions are safe. And people who aren't able to control their emotions, well, who knows what they're capable of? They're out of control. And it, it, it brought up a boundary issue for me, again, where I'm always being so careful not to stimulate anything negative or unpleasant in another person. So on some level, clearly, I still believe that it is my responsibility to make other people feel happy. 
So having all these people exploding emotionally around me felt like they didn't have that same culture where they were worrying about my needs and my comfort. And when someone isn't worrying about my needs and my comfort, I feel unsafe because my boundary issue means I don't trust myself to guard my needs and my comfort if someone else isn't doing it for me. So right in front of me, there's this guy, and I'm trying to be with him as he sobs and sobs and sobs and help him work his way through that. Meanwhile, all around me, all these other people are screaming and sobbing. Some of them are so loud, they had to like leave the room and like yell in the halls. And it was absolutely the strangest, most intense workshop experience I have ever had. I was acutely aware that if anyone was peering in through a window or was a fly on the wall or had a camera going, that this whole thing would look totally insane. A bunch of adults got together and paid a bunch of money to go to a workshop where they just sit around and sob together? It sounds absurd. It sounds crazy. It sounds super weird. But actually, when you think about it, yeah, damn right, that's exactly what people need to do. Once the crying died down and we came back into the group to kind of talk through what had happened, I felt kind of inspired. I was impressed that my partner was able to cry and sob so readily. It really worked. In fact, it worked for many people in the room. And it worked fast. And I was inspired but also intimidated and worried that I wouldn't be able to cry. And then I wouldn't fit in with all of these interesting people, so I wouldn't belong, so I would feel shame. And again, I love how that shows the arbitrary nature of shame. In any other scenario, I would be avoiding sobbing so that I don't feel shame. But in this scenario, because of the context that was set, I will feel shame if I don't sob. So it goes to show how shame is always shifting to fit the group setting that we happen to be in. The messages of shame always feel so true and so important, but yet they are always completely subjective, context-dependent, and arbitrary. It's just our body's way of saying, fit in here, fit in there, fit in now. Even if it's completely different than what you value or how you fit in with your most important groups, like your family. Shame is like, do it, fit in, now. In the afternoon, as an entire group, all 50 participants, we kind of spread around this large room and we started doing these sound and movement techniques to basically, I think, get us comfortable expressing ourselves in audible physical ways. I think a lot of what stops us from sobbing is that it's, it's loud and your body is shaking kind of out of control. And it's a scary, vulnerable, exposed feeling. 
So we were doing these crazy sounds and movements that just looked totally silly and absurd and bizarre and kind of embarrassing because it was just getting us comfortable with those kinds of sounds and movements. So you've got 50 people kind of squirming and moving in all these weird ways on the floor, moving around, and we're making these noises like, It was sort of like speaking in tongues like they do at, I'm not sure which denomination, Episcopal or something like that, where they just sort of jabber and jibber-jabber full of passion and inspiration from God. It felt like that. And as we were doing it, we started to kind of go through the process again and try the different phrases. And I actually did manage to cry in this group. Of course, my eyes were closed and everyone was sort of in their own little weird world. But I was really impressed that in front of all these people, in theory, I was crying. I wasn't sobbing, but I did manage to cry. So for me, that was a big win. But then when I went home that night, I tried to do the process by myself, which you're supposed to be able to do, and I couldn't get any tears to come out at all, let alone a sob. And maybe it was because I was exhausted or all cried out from that weird sound and movement exercise. I'm not sure. But I was worried, like, maybe this isn't going to work for me. I felt kind of impotent. Like, again, it's a shame scenario of what if there's something wrong with me? What if I'm not brave enough to access my emotions? What if I'm just not strong enough to go there? What if that means that I'm lesser, that I'm worse, that I'm bad? Shame, shame, shame. On the second and last day of the workshop, we were put into intimate pairs where we were going to focus on the process in depth. This was the moment. This was it. It was like, okay, if I'm going to sob in front of a person, it has to be now. The process is actually called NADERA. It's an acronym, N-E-D-E-R-A. I'll put the definition of the acronym in the show notes as well as a link to Doug's work so that you can explore it for yourself. But suffice to say, I basically just sat in front of this complete stranger and thought of some, you know, something that was on my mind, some conflict or a bit of emotion, something that I was worried about. And I explained what it was to my partner. And my partner kept smiling. He had this really polite kind of customer service smile that didn't feel super conducive to crying. And it was also bringing out a smile in me. When someone smiles at me, you know, kind of to be nice, I immediately smile back to be nice. And it, it creates this little bit of a, you know, it's it's nice. We're both trying to be nice. Like, okay, that's nice. <laughs> We're both trying to be nice to each other because we want to connect. That's beautiful. But it it wasn't getting me in this mood where I felt like I could actually cry comfortably. So I was telling him the story of my conflict, and I was auditioning some of these nine core feelings, like, I feel bad. And I could feel that there was emotion somewhere, but it was not coming through my chest and throat into my face like it was supposed to. It was blocked. 
And Doug Tataran actually came over and worked with me. And he showed me how whatever the block was, you could use it to get to the emotion. Because the block is a strategy to stop the emotion from coming through. So it's actually very closely connected. So he was just asking me, like, you know, why are you blocked? What does that feel like? And I was like, well, I'm embarrassed. I don't, I don't want to cry in front of this person. It's, you know, it's just, it's a lot of pressure and they're going to, I don't know, I'm going to look bad. And I just sort of followed the thread of my blocks and my armor. And I very quickly got to this kind of emotional place where I was like, I would feel totally pathetic and weak and unsafe if I show these emotions, and they started to come. So by talking about the blocks and the defenses, I was able to find the sadness associated with having to hide my emotions in the first place. The the fear of looking pathetic and weak and vulnerable, and the feeling that someone was going to hurt me if I showed that side of myself. And from there, tears sprang up. And those tears actually led into the issue that I actually wanted to talk about, the conflict that was actually alive for me. And that deepened it. And I started crying more. And then those tears led deeper and deeper into all these other like childhood issues. And it just broke out into sobbing. And I was doing it. I was sobbing. It was incredible. I couldn't believe it. I was sobbing in front of a stranger in a room full of strangers, like audibly sobbing. And and part of me was sobbing and exploring all of that sadness. And another part of me was like, I'm fucking doing it. This is amazing. So I sobbed for a while and I kind of like mumbled through the sobbing. And I, I should note that this whole time I was avoiding eye contact from my partner. I was just staring down or my eyes were kind of closed. Every now and then I would peek up at him, but then it would kind of like take the emotion away again. So then I would turn back and I would lean into that fear, that sadness, that vulnerability, that patheticness. And I was trying, the, I think the lines that were working for me the most were, I feel inadequate, I feel alone. Those two of the nine different feeling phrases were the ones that were working the most with this whole like feeling like I can't cry in front of someone's sadness leading into all these other sadnesses that have gone back for years of not crying in front of people. And I really just like let it all out. And by the time I felt like something had shifted, I broke into laughter because I was just so I couldn't believe that I had just sobbed. So I I was like, and it showed me how similar sobbing and laughter are. Both of them kind of shake your body in the same way. So you couldn't really tell. It was like, am I still sobbing or am I laughing? And I had sobbed so much that I like my nose was running snot, like my whole face was just a mess. And then I just felt like this crazy feeling, like my my face felt like it was throbbing. And there was this tiredness kind of like in my face as if I had just exercised a muscle intensely, but a muscle that I had never felt before, a muscle I didn't even know I had. It was like an ancient part of my body had been reawakened. And I felt this kind of like dampened dizziness that was almost like post-orgasmic, like this fog where you're just kind of like, whoa, something just like got released and I don't know what happened. And now I'm just like chilling in this 
really peaceful, like really nice, but kind of tingly um, space of just like recuperating. And I really got it. I was like, wow, just by sobbing it out, something about that conflict, that emotional issue shifted. I didn't feel like I was inadequate. I didn't feel like I was alone because I had worked through that feeling. And it it showed me how emotions operate so differently than thoughts. And it's clear that emotions and thoughts are, you know, commingling and stimulating each other. But a thought, you know, if, if I'm having an unpleasant thought, I can kind of brush it away and think about something else and it's gone. But with an unpleasant emotion, I need to feel it. I can't brush it away. I need to work through it. I, I need to let it work through me in a way. And once it's done that process, then it lets itself go. So all this effort that we make to try to avoid emotions is completely counterproductive and misguided. Because I realize that an emotion is a process. And if you stop the process at any point, it basically just gets frozen inside of your nervous system or your body or your limbic system. And it's like all of your emotional processes get backlogged behind that emotion. And everything starts to get kind of confused and dampened because you're not letting this one difficult emotion regulate. And that's what an emotion is supposed to do. It it elevates us up to give us some important information or some important kind of motivation to tackle whatever situation is at hand. And then our body regulates it, like processes it by actually feeling it. And the process of feeling it is the regulation that brings the arousal down so that we can come back to our normal state of just kind of being neutral. So if you stop yourself from feeling an emotion, you're actually freezing it in a kind of arousal state, which causes it to last longer. So you're trapped with all of these half-finished emotional processes that are weighing you down and causing problems probably in your body, and you're not feeling all of the other good emotions that are trapped behind them. So I was like feeling this incredible sense of relief of having taken a deep, unpleasant emotion and just cried it out, which actually wasn't painful. There's, there's nothing painful about sobbing. It's not hard to do. It's not unpleasant. It's just a release that we culturally have decided is taboo and shameful. And that is such a shame. Because the best way to avoid constantly feeling low-level badness, sadness, and fear is to let ourselves fully feel and cry out those feelings of I'm bad, I'm sad, or I'm afraid. That's how you let an emotion go, by feeling it. So I have to admit, the weekend was kind of a paradigm shift for me. It was kind of mind-blowing, and it was kind of sad to realize that I had spent my whole life avoiding this extremely healthy and cathartic thing, crying and sobbing. 
And it made me realize that I'm constantly dealing with shame in a very cognitive way, which works to a certain degree. And I could actually feel in an exercise that we did that afternoon that my cognitive defenses against shame, as effective and wonderful and helpful as they are, are blocking me from fully crying out the emotion of shame. So I started to play with the feeling phrases of, I feel bad, I feel worthless, because I was like, you know, shame is my issue, so I feel bad, I feel worthless, should really activate me. But they weren't. And I think that's because I have already done so much work around those phrases, around those beliefs, and my brain no longer believes them to be true. So I'm not really able to access the emotion behind them. But the truth is, I've never really completely processed the emotion of I feel bad or I feel worthless either. So probably somewhere in me is a process that has been stopped that would be really cathartic to sob out, to let the process run through me, to to let the emotion regulate itself in my body. But my brain is protecting me from that because it thinks that's a bad thing. So now I have to take all of these defenses against feeling worthless that are cognitive and kind of find a way to put them aside so I can create a channel where I can let the emotion of I feel worthless play itself out. And once I have let that emotion completely play itself out by probably sobbing about it a few times, then I can put those cognitive beliefs back into place of, I feel worthy, I feel valuable, I feel equal. All of the things that I have earned and convinced myself are true since my shame breakthrough. But one interesting facet of just crying it out emotionally is that maybe you don't even need to do a lot of cognitive work after you've cried it out because there is this connection between our emotions and our beliefs. And I actually believe, and I've said this before, that it's not that we think we are different, bad, and alone, and that's what causes us to feel shame. I think it's the opposite. I think we feel shame, and that's what causes us to think we are different, bad, and alone. So it makes sense that you, if you just allow your body to completely process the emotion of, I feel shame that the beliefs that are structured on top of it, the embodied beliefs of I'm different, bad, and alone, will kind of fall away because they're built on a foundation of an emotion that is shame. So when it comes to embodied beliefs, beliefs that are tied to emotions, if you can deal with the emotion, allow your body to just sob it out, to just regulate itself, then those beliefs don't have an anchor holding them down anymore and they can blow over really easily. So this is a process that I'm still in. I'm curious to know, is there still a bunch of emotion wrapped up in shame that is trapped inside me somewhere? An unfinished frozen process, which, by the way, is essentially the definition of trauma. When we're overwhelmed by an experience and a feeling and emotion so much that we fear that if we allow it to pass through us, we're going to die... So we stop that process, and then every time we re-encounter it, we end up in a kind of freeze state, or we disassociate. We can't face it. That is basically trauma. 
So avoiding crying and stopping our emotions from completing is like a micro form of trauma. And I'm excited to poke around behind my well-crafted cognitive defenses and see if there's some emotion in there that I can let out finally. And already I feel so much more comfortable crying. After the second night, I went home and watched a movie, and I actually watched A League of Their Own, which isn't quite as fun as I remember it from when I was a kid. But there was a couple sad moments, and I just noticed I was crying. It wasn't like the usual kind of empathetic catharsis that I kind of squeeze out of my face when I watch a movie. It just happened. I just was like, oh, whatever, I'm crying. Like, I didn't even think about it. And to me, that was a good sign that I'm that much more in touch with my crying now. And I'm hoping that going forward, when I need to cry, I'll just cry. And when I need a good sob, I'll just find a moment to have a good sob. And I really hope that this kind of pro-sobbing sentiment starts to spread. Because I feel like one of the worst parts about crying or sobbing in front of people is the way other people react. How they desperately try to console you and they make a big deal out of it and they're kind of uncomfortable and they get you Kleenex and they want it to stop as quickly as possible. It is really uncomfortable, I know, because I have been there. I used to be that kind of person who did not want to be around any crying. Now I've been around a lot of it and it doesn't really bother me. But I think I would be more comfortable crying in front of people if I trusted that other people weren't going to freak out about me crying. So the next time you are around someone who's crying, I encourage you to be as matter-of-fact about it as possible. You don't need to cry with them. You don't need to console them. You can just be there and make it clear that their crying is completely normal and welcome. And I would love to get to a future point where you cry just as much as you laugh and you don't even think about it. You don't even give it a second thought and no one blinks an eye. It's just that's life because that is life. 